Well, good morning. Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church. Just uh, one announcement, those who are considering, uh, who are planning to apply as members of Cornerstone, please remember to turn in your applications. Uh, we are trying to get those in within the next couple of weeks. Now this morning, uh, we are coming back to the epistle of 1 John, will be in the third chapter. Be uh, looking at particularly verses 7 through 10, the passage, so if you want to turn that way. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 10 of 1 John. Before we read the passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, now we come to the preaching of your word, and we just pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that you will oversee everything that is said, that it may be according to the truth of your word. We know that your word is powerful, and we just pray, Lord, that you will help us to have hearts that are receptive to your word, that it may help us to transform us more and more into the image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So 1 John chapter 3 and verses 7 through 10. Uh, this is really part of a whole paragraph that begins at the beginning of chapter 3 and even the transition to the last verse of chapter 2 in which the Apostle John here is dealing especially with the concept of uh, the children of God, those who have been adopted by God been regenerated and justified and then adopted into God's family. And this morning we come to a passage which is important in helping to differentiate those who are children of God and those who are not. So let's read beginning in verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, if you were to ask people in general whether they are a child of God or a child of the devil, most likely most would identify as children of God. The idea of the universal fatherhood of God is quite popular in our society, in our culture. In January of 2016, Pope Francis appeared in a video which also featured four other people, a Catholic priest, a Jewish rabbi, a Muslim leader, and a Buddhist lama. In that video, among other things, the Pope said the following, quote, many think differently, feel differently, seeking God or meeting God in different ways. In this crowd, in this range of re religions, there is only one certainty we have for all. We are all children of God." Close quote. 
Now this is the teaching of the universal fatherhood of God, which has been taught by liberal Protestant leaders for many years. God is everybody's father. We're all children of God, and as children of God, we are all brothers and sisters, according to this teaching. Now our society, our culture, embraces this belief, preferring to believe in a God who disregards sin and who makes no demands of men and women. It's an easy God to believe in. But the Bible teaches no such thing, quite the contrary. The Bible teaches that God is the father only of those who truly believe savingly in his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus himself in John 14, 6 affirms this. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In our epistle, 1 John, for this morning, it states even in chapter 2 and verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. The biblical truth that believers become children of God at the time of conversion deals the death blow to the doctrine of the universal fatherhood of God. Now it's true that scripture sometimes speaks of God's fatherhood in universal terms. One example of this we find with Paul was at Mars Hill speaking to the Athenians in Acts 17 and verses 28 and 29, Paul says to the Athenians, for in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. However, the context of this statement clearly indicates that Paul was speaking here of the reality that God is the creator of all mankind. And as thus, as the universal creator, he's the universal father only in that sense. According to Hebrews 12, 9, he's the father of spirits who gives all mankind life and breath and everything. That's in chapter 17, verse 25 of Acts. And in verse 28, Paul says in the same chapter, 17, that he made from one man every nation of mankind. In verse 26 and then in 28, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Nevertheless, the fact that God is the common creator of all human beings does not mean that all are his children. Not as children in the relational sense indicated by the doctrine of adoption. Now Jesus clearly distinguished between his father and the Pharisees' father. In Luke, I'm sorry, in John chapter 8 and verse 38, he says, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. So he's definitely making a distinction here. And he denied that God is their father. In chapter 8 and verse 42, Jesus says to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. And he explicitly declared 
you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father in verse 44. So rather than being sons of God, natural humanity is described as the sons of disobedience. And we find that in Ephesians chapter two, verse two, and then chapter five, verse six. So far from relating naturally to God as children, all fallen human beings are by nature children of wrath. Ephesians chapter two and verse three. It is only to those who receive Jesus and believe in his name that authority is given to become children of God. John 1.12 states, but as many as received them, him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So justified sinners become sons and daughters of the Father with all the rights and privileges that a member of his family enjoys. And so at the beginning of 1 John chapter 3 that we're looking at this morning, John states in verse 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. And then in verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And in verse 10 of our passage this morning, the Apostle John commend, comments on this distinction, the distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil, noting that the children of the devil are those who do not practice righteousness. So every person here this morning is either a child of God or a child of the devil. Those are the only two biblical categories. And the passage that we have here before us this morning, chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, shows us that there is a perfectly accurate test to determine whose child we are. You know, the epistle of John is written to believers who were in difficulty because of false teachers having infiltrated the churches. And the epistle is written to assure believers and it presents a series of tests of true believers. And this is one that we see here this morning. We learn in our passage here that obedience to God's word that is practicing righteousness and disobedient to God's word that is practicing sin distinguishes for us who is our real father. It answers the question, am I still a child of the devil? But why do we need to ask the question, am I still a child of the devil? Well, the reason is that all of us were born child of the devil. That's how we were born. Rather than being sons of God, natural humanity is described as the sons of disobedience. Listen to Ephesians chapter two, verses one and two. You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then in chapter five and verse six of Ephesians, he says the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So far from relating naturally to God as children, in their natural state, all fallen human beings 
are by nature children of wrath. Chapter 2 and verse 3 states, We too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So the only way that one who is dead in his sins, a son of disobedience and a child of wrath, can become a child of God is when God, in displaying his great love and his great mercy, makes him or her alive in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So the question each one must ask is, am I still a child of the devil, or have I, through the new birth, become a child of God? The theme of these verses in our passage in 1 John this morning is stated clearly in verse 10. There it says, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. We could summarize these verses in this way. The surest, most accurate test to truly evaluate one's spiritual heritage or lineage that is, whether one is a child of God or a child of the devil, the surest, most accurate test is our habitual practice of righteousness. A child of the devil practices sin. A child of God practices righteousness. These verses give us a crucial insight into our spiritual standing before God. As John begins this discussion in verse 7, he starts with a warning. The first thing, a warning about being deceived regarding our spiritual heritage. See, there are people teaching falsehoods regarding our spiritual relation to God. Therefore, John gives a warning. He says in verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Now, here John gives a serious warning to those he calls his little children. Those are members of the congregation to whom he's writing. They're his little children because they're his children in the faith, but also God's little children because they have been born again and have been adopted by God. To those who are believers, he says, make sure you are not deceived. Make sure no one deceives you. This is a call to be alert and it's addressed to first century Christians who were receiving this epistle. But it's also a call for us to be alert as Christians today because Satan continues his relentless attack on the Christians and the church through false teachers. False teachers are still trying to deceive us. Now the Greek word translated deceive here by John means to lead astray. John says, make sure that you continue to be alert so that no one leads you astray. He was warning the believers that Satan was going to use the false teachers and who had left their churches. 
Back in chapter 2 and verse 18 of this same epistle, he says, even now many antichrists have appeared. He says this referring to the false teachers that had arisen in the church, from within the church. And then in verse 19 of that chapter, he says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they were of us, for if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be manifested that they all are not of us. So these false teachers infiltrate the church and mingle among believers, attempting to destroy by spreading lies and deceptions. But eventually, most depart, separating from true Christians, leaving a path of spiritual destruction and inevitably taking some of the weak with them. So Satan was going to use those false teachers and those false Christians to try to deceive true believers about the truth, to try to lead them astray. And this is how spiritual deception happens often. Such deceivers, such false teachers have long plagued the church, have plagued God's people throughout redemptive history. When we look back in an example in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 14 and verse 14, states the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and, this is key, the deception of their own minds. These were deceits generated from the prophet's deceitful hearts. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus himself warned that not everyone who claims to belong to God and to speak for him actually does so. In chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 15, he states, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. <clears throat> Similarly to the Apostle John's warning here in 1 John, to make sure no one deceives you, the Lord Jesus here warns, beware of the false prophets. It is a warning of danger. It is a call to be on guard. Because false teachers are not just wrong, <clears throat> but they're dangerous and we must be on the alert. Must be on the alert not to expose our minds and hearts to them because they pervert the mind and they poison the soul. Now, the most dangerous characteristic of false teachers is that they claim to be from God and speak on his behalf. It says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, shepherds usually wore woolen clothing made from the wool of the sheep they tended. And that is the sheep's clothing of which the Lord Jesus most likely speaks here. False prophets do not deceive the flock by impersonating sheep, but by impersonating the shepherd. So false teachers often disguise themselves as true shepherds. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, <clears throat> in verses 13 through 15, Paul speaking of false teachers says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves 
as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. <clears throat> so we read here that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. <clears throat> he and his servants do not openly present themselves as false teachers. Paul denounced the false apostles in strong, forceful language because the truth was at stake. Paul exposed the deceiving false teachers as Satan's servants in verse 15. Satan's servants masquerading as true men of God, as servants of righteousness. In chapter 20 of the book of Acts, Paul described, um, in the chapter describes the apostle Paul's meeting with the Ephesian elders at Miletus knowing that they would not see each other again. And there, Paul, again, gives them a warning. Beginning in verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among yourselves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Knowing that the church would be attacked, Paul pointed its leaders to the only source of protection. A little further on in verse 32 in that same chapter, he says to them, I now commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We see here that the only way to avoid, avoid being deceived is to be alert and to be discerning. And the only way to be discerning is to know, understand, and apply the word of God. Because using false teachers, Satan tries to deceive true believers even through misusing the word of God. He deceives doctrinally. In other words, he wants you to believe something the Bible doesn't teach. He wants you to be persuaded with false doctrine. First on itself in chapter 2 and verse 22 states, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. John here would, says, some of these false teachers are trying to teach you bad theology, bad doctrine regarding Jesus, the Messiah. He says, don't believe them. Satan also uses false teachers to try to deceive believers morally. So the deceives doctrinally, misusing the scriptures, and he deceives believers morally. He wants the believers to step off the course of obedience to the word of God, to step off the course of righteousness and into sin. This is the point of our text uh, this morning. Now in this passage, John is dealing with the deception regarding the believer's conduct regarding the believer's behavior. 
practicing righteousness versus practicing sin. And the deception about righteousness may come in different forms. Now, one form of deception is you gain a right standing with God by trying to be righteous. In other words, the way you get to heaven is you earn your way there. Just to be a good person, just do the best you can. Make sure that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and you'll be okay. Of course, this notion is completely foreign to the Bible. Isaiah 64, 6 states, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So the best unregenerate human beings can do is to produce righteousness that looks good to us, but in the eyes of God looks filthy. No one will ever earn his or her, her way into heaven. You're never going to be good enough. Romans 3 states, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Therefore, you can't earn your way into God's favor. Another form of deception is that you appear extremely righteous. If you appear extremely righteous, you are righteous. In other words, if you look good to everybody else, you must be good. That's, of course, the lie of the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, the Lord Jesus addresses the Pharisees. He says to them in verse 5, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. And then Matthew 23, 20, verses 27 through 28, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So looking good on the outside is not good enough. It's not real righteousness. Another form of deception is you can be righteous without practicing righteousness. This is the chief deception that John's addressing here. Look at verse seven, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. The heresy that had infiltrated the churches that John ministered to in the first century taught that matter is evil and spirit is good. And so the false teachers argued this. They said, your body is matter, therefore your body is evil. Your spirit, on the other hand, is good. So your body is always going to be evil. You can't do anything about it. So just let your body do whatever it wants. And it'll never really affect your spirit. You do whatever you want, engage in whatever behavior you want, and you're still righteous. Sadly, that idea that a person can be righteous without practicing righteousness is still around today. It says you can continually live in sin as a pattern of life and still be a Christian. If years ago you prayed a prayer and you said, Jesus, come into my heart, you can live like a pagan the rest of your life and still be considered a Christian. You're going to be in heaven. That is one of Satan's great lies. 
that is a significant and very prevalent deception, even quite prevalent in our day. It's absolutely contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture. Listen to Paul states in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul is very clear here. He says, do you not know? He's saying, you ought to know this. This is something obvious to every believer. Do you not know that the unrighteous, that is those whose lives are characterized by unrighteousness, whose lives are characterized by a persistent, habitual pattern of sin, those will not inherit the kingdom of God. So who will inherit the kingdom of God? Answer, the children of God. Therefore, those whose lives are characterized by unrighteousness are not the children of God and will not participate in God's kingdom. That's what he says. And then he gives some examples here. Now, he does not give an exhaustive list. These are examples of unrighteous living. He's saying as long as you are unrighteous in one of these ways or some other way, as long as your life is characterized by sin, you're not going to be in the kingdom of God. He says, but he says some of you were like this. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You've been changed. Old things are gone. New things have come. If you're a true believer, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. So then back to 1 John, he says, if you claim to be a Christian, make sure nobody deceives you. Satan has planted false teachers in the church. He's planted false believers in the church. And those false teachers and those false believers will be his tools to deceive you about sin and righteousness. They will tell you something other, other than what the scripture says. You'd better make sure you're alert and discerning spiritually. Grounded in the truth of scripture and not being deceived by what someone is telling you. So the first truth we learn in this passage has to do with avoiding the deadly deception regarding our spiritual heritage. Then we find the biblical truth about our spiritual heritage. He says, don't be deceived, and now let me tell you the truth. He says, our habitual conduct proves whose children we really are. No, it is our habitual conduct proves who we really are. The surest test of our spiritual heritage is our habitual con conduct. A child of God practices righteousness. He says in verse 7, the one who practices righteousness is righteous. Literally, the Greek text says, the one practicing. 
the Legacy Standard Bible translates as the one who does righteousness. So we're not talking about somebody who occasionally performs a righteous deed. We're talking about somebody who habitually, as a pattern of life, lives in righteousness. That is, their life reflects submission and obedience to what the Word of God commands. Habitual living in righteousness reflects submission and obedience to what the Word of God commands. Now we must not misunderstand what John is saying here. He's not saying that practicing righteousness earns you a right standing with God. And that's key to understand that. That practicing righteousness is how you earn eternal life. He does not say the one who practices righteousness becomes righteous. He says the one who practices righteousness is righteous. That is, has been declared righteous. And before John has stated that the one who is righteous is the one who has been born of God. In other words, habitual righteous conduct is the evidence of a righteous heart. It is the evidence of a righteous heart. The practice of righteousness does not make the individual righteous. Rather, it manifests that he or she is righteous before God. In Matthew chapter seven, uh, 7 and verse 16, Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? And this is what John is saying. Examine the fruit of your life. Look at how you live. And that shows the kind of tree you are. If your heart is right with God, you'll see a life characterized by good fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, good deeds, obedience, the Word of God. A life that reflects the character and life of Jesus Christ. You can't claim to be a Christian and not obey the Word of God for year after year because you made some profession years ago and you can still say that I'm a Christian. That is a tragic lie. Verse 7 says, The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Just as he is righteous. It doesn't mean that we're righteous to the same extent, extent as Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll be made like him when he returns. In verse 2 of this same chapter in 1 John, he says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. But in this life, it doesn't mean we're going to be like him to the same extent. It means we're going to be like him in the same manner. So if, if you really are righteous, that is, if you have been born of him, you will live in a way that is morally consistent with the Lord that you now claim. So the first way John makes his point is that the one practicing righteousness is righteous. The second way he underscores the importance of habitual righteous conduct is by a contrasting comparison. He makes a contrast in verse 8. He says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. Or the one who does sin is of the devil. The verb here is in the present tense in the Greek. 
It means that this is that person's continual habitual practice. It doesn't mean someone who occasionally sins. It means someone who's, that is their habitual practice, their habitual life and behavior. The phrase is of the devil, literally out of the devil, speaks of the source of the one who practices sin. The person is out of the devil. That's why down in verse 10, it says that this person is not of God. Therefore, is a child of the devil. In chapter 8 and verse 44 of John, the Gospel of John, Jesus said to those who were unregenerate, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. Doing the desires of their father, the devil, meant practicing sin, practicing unrighteousness. Now here in the epistle, where we are, John introduces us to this person called the devil. Throughout his writings, John assumes, as Jesus did also, the existence and the, uh, and the incredible evil of the devil as a personal being. The reality of the existence of evil points to the existence of an actual perpetrator of evil. The Bible affirms and describes that the perpetrator is devil, the devil or Satan. You see, Satan was created as the anointed guardian cherub, a chief angel who served in God's presence. And you can see that in Ezekiel chapter 28 and verses 13 through 16. But he chose to rebel against God and now rebelliously leads a band of evil angels disguising himself as an angel of light. Satan exhibits the three basic characteristics that are associated with personhood, intellect, affection, and will. Although many terms are used of him in the Bible, Satan and devil are the most frequent. Satan means the adversary, adversary and devil means slanderer. He has been the chief perpetrator of evil aggression, both against and within the purposes and plans of God. And he makes slanderous accusations against true believers and against God. Satan is a prototypical rebel. He's leading the leading antagonist against God and the ruler of this sinful world. In verse 8, it states, the one who practices sin is of the devil. The one doing sin is out of the devil, it could also be said. Notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say that those who practice sin are born of the devil. He says, rather, they are of the devil. The devil is not the source of their life, but the source of the evil that marks their lives. So every unregenerate person is a child of the devil. Therefore, every person is still a child of the devil if he or she has not been born again. But every unregenerate person is dominated by the principle of sin that Satan is the source of. Satan is the source of the sin that dominates the life of every unregenerate person. And therefore, Jesus called them and John calls them the children of the devil. 
They are inspired by him, motivated by him, and they are imitators of him. Therefore, the one who practices sin is of the devil. John goes on in verse 8 to say, For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now, sin is what characterizes Satan from the beginning. It says, So the one who practices sin is of the devil because sin is perfectly consistent with Satan's nature and work, as he is described here. He's been sinning from the beginning. Now, the beginning here doesn't refer to when God created Satan. That's important to note. <clears throat> because God originally created him as a perfect angelic being. So Satan was not created evil. So it's not talking about the beginning of his creation. Instead, by the beginning here, John means from the beginning of Satan's sin. From the moment of his fall. From the moment he chose to rebel against God. <clears throat> sin originated with Satan's first rebellion against God. From the moment of his fall, he's sinning, he's rebelling against God. And that has continually been his activity. It is his, his essential character. That has been his existence. Now, if Satan is consistently sinning, it makes perfect sense that those who belong to Satan are also constantly sinning. Sin is perfectly consistent with Satan's nature and with his work. So John says the one who practices sin is of the devil. He or she are just doing what their father does. He sins all the time. He's sinned since the beginning. He sins every day of his existence. And so does every person who belongs to him. Now the last half of verse 8 states the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Again, we see a contrast here in this verse. John's point here is that the one practicing sin is of the devil because sin is diametrically opposed to Christ's nature and work. He says the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Sin is consistent with Satan's nature and work, but sin is dramatically opposed to Jesus Christ's nature and work. John uses this title here, the Son of God for Jesus Christ. <clears throat> it emphasizes his true identity as God, as the eternal Son of God. John again says, he appeared as he did in verse 5, where he said, he appeared in order to take away sins. <clears throat> Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ there in verse 5, he refers to him in his incarnation when he was first manifested in, as a man. He says he appeared in order to take away sins, or speaking of the purpose for Christ's first coming. He appeared in order to take away sins a reference to the Lord's incarnation. And as John says he appeared, he does so to emphasize that Jesus' existence did not begin with his incarnation. He eternally existed as the Son of God, and he appeared. Why did he appear? What was the purpose of his incarnation? Verse 8 tells us the Son of God appeared for this purpose, 
to destroy the works of the devil. So we see here both in verse 5 and then here in verse 8 that the Son of God appeared to take away sins and appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Now, what are the works of the devil? In chapter, 40, chapter 8 and verse 44 of John, it says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Wherever he speaks, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so here the Lord Jesus Christ is describing the devil and is describing his works. He describes as a murderer from the beginning, a liar, and a deceiver. The works of the devil are basically and greatly to counter the work of God. Throughout his existence, his works are countering, rebelling against the work of God. As a murderer, Satan works against God who is life. As a liar, Satan works against God who is truth. In the lives of unbelievers, the work of the devil is to keep them from coming to saving faith in Christ. In the lives of believers, the work of the devil is to tempt, <clears throat> tempt them to sin and thus to blunt their effectiveness for Christ in this world. So how then does Jesus destroy the works of the devil? By saving his people from the guilt, penalty, and power of sin by saving his people from the guilt, penalty, and power of sin. In verse 5 of 1 John, as we have just said, the expression there is parallel to what is in the expression in verse 8. In verse 8, it says he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. In verse 5, he appeared in order to take away sins. This is how Lord Jesus Christ destroys the work of the devil for all his people. He does so by taking away sin, by taking them on himself on the cross. And there on the cross was his victory over the devil. First Peter chapter two and verse 24 states, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The word the Greek word translated destroy here in, the, in 1 John verse 8 literally means to lose. It pictures the work of Satan as enslaving us. He came, but Christ came to lose us from the works of the devil. The verb tense, by the way, points to a specific decisive moment in the past. So when did the Lord destroy the works of the devil? and his victory over Satan at the cross. Jesus himself talked about that in John chapter 12 and verse 31, the night as he anticipated his crucifixion, he said, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out as the Lord is looking forward to the cross. He's saying by my death, I'm going to destroy the works of the devil. 
In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 states, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. But it's interesting, this word destroy does not mean to annihilate. And that's significant because Jesus didn't annihilate the works of the devil at the cross. Satan is still doing his work. What this word means is to render powerless or inoperative. It means to conquer, to overthrow. See, at the cross, Jesus destroys the works of the devil. In that, he rendered, he rendered the devil's work powerless for those whom he saved. He began the work of destroying Satan completely, but that work is not yet complete. One day, Christ will return, and then he will ultimately and finally destroy the works of the devil at the final judgment. When he casts Satan and his demons and Satan's children eternally into the lake of fire. And then he destroys death. The one practicing sin is of the devil and not of Jesus Christ, because sin is diametrically opposed to Christ's nature and work. Sin is incompatible with Christ's nature and work. So Christ destroys the work of the devil by saving his people from their sin. Today, Satan is still opposing the plans and the people of God. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 states, Be sober, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But believers are no longer his children or under his rule. Believers are not bound to do his works because Jesus Christ has destroyed the work of the devil. So as there's more in this passage we'll have to wait for next time. But as we think about these things, it is important for each one to examine ourselves. Where do we find ourselves before God? If this morning you're not sure that you have committed your eternal destiny to the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, I beg of you to consider. And to those who have been born again, what a wonderful assurance it is that the Lord has destroyed the works of the devil and that we are not bound to do his works through his power. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the assurance we have that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has had victory over Satan, victory over sin at the cross. We're thankful, Lord, that you have called us to yourself in salvation. And for any here this morning who has not done so, we pray that your Holy Spirit will quicken their hearts for them to come in repentance before you. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to be assured of who we are as your children and help us, Lord, to walk in righteousness, 
to walk in the works to which you have called us, which we can only do in the power and the strength of your Holy Spirit through your word. And help us, Lord, to do so, we pray in his name. Amen.